0: And Father, as we now come to your word, we remember that your word is sufficient for all seasons of life. And we thank you for the Holy Spirit who helps us to understand, who shines light on your word, and shows us the truth of your word, and helps us not only understand, but apply your word to our lives. We pray, O Lord, that your word would be more than just intellectual knowledge for us, We pray that it would be life-transforming. We pray, O Lord, that as we study Your Word today, that You would grow us in Christ's likeness, that You would show us our desperate need for Him and the sufficiency of Christ in all things. We pray for our children. We pray for those who are listening online, maybe those who are lost, And we pray, O Lord, that that Your Word would be like a true north to them, directing them to Christ, to find salvation in Him. We pray that You would use Your Word to smash every bit of confidence we might have in the flesh, all for the glory of Christ. In His name we pray. Amen. (laughs) <laughs> well, if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Psalm 36. If you can believe it, I, I, as, and I, I just thought of it for the first time this morning as, uh, as I was getting, uh, getting ready for church, we have been in the Psalms for three years now. Uh, for our first Sundays, and um, obviously uh, Psalm 36 out of uh, roughly 150 Psalms, we've got a long way to go. Uh, I don't know if we will uh, work our way completely to the end, but eventually, I, I hope to. Um, that might take the rest of my career, but uh, we are in Psalm 36 today. Um, the title that I have in, in my Bible, in the in the pulpit Bible that I've got here. For this psalm is the wickedness of men and the loving kindness of God. And that is a, a great description of this psalm. Uh, one of the things that the psalms has done, uh, not only do we, do we get so much rich theology from the psalms, but they are also therapeutic. They, they speak to our hearts because they're written by, uh, the ones that we've studied have mostly been written by David when he was in moments of distress or trouble in his soul. And we all know what that's like. We all know what it's like to have trouble in our souls. And this one will be no different. This one will give us peace uh, in, in waters that don't feel so calm. So we'll be looking at Psalm 36 today. But this is important because we do live in stressful times. Uh, there's no question about that. It doesn't take any degree of, of exaggeration uh, as you look across our country right now to, to realize that these are stressful times. There's a lot of division among political groups, uh, religious groups, all kinds of groups. If anything, it would be an understatement to say there's a lot of division. It is absolutely everywhere in our society right now. And if the saying, united we stand, divided we fall, is true, I fear that we are all in for a very long and hard fall as a nation. But here's the question. Why? Why is there so much division? This isn't the first time that that a culture has had uh, as much division as we're seeing in our culture today. This isn't the first time. Why does division to this degree exist? Why does it happen? Why does one person decide he hates another person so much? Uh, To make the answer as as simple as, Uh, and as biblical as possible, let me start uh, by stressing the fact that only Christians with a biblical worldview can truly understand the reason that division like what we're seeing today exists. We realize that it's because sin exists. Alexander Solzhenitsyn, yeah, try saying that five times fast. Alexander Solzhenitsyn once wrote, quote, the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. Quote. And this much is undeniably true if we understand Scripture's testimony about man. God's Word tells us very clearly that when Adam and Eve fell into sin, it wasn't just them who fell into sin. No, all of their offspring fell into sin as well, which means we fell into sin with them. Now, there are two ways of considering our condition. There's a right way and a wrong way. The wrong way would be to say that we are sinners because we sin. That's a pretty common way of looking at it. We're sinners because we sin. That is to say that we are not sinners by nature. Rather, people are basically good. People are born innocent. Babies are completely innocent. But when we do what is bad... When we sin, that is, we we suddenly meet the criteria for being labeled as sinners. That's the wrong way to view our condition. The right way of viewing our condition is to understand that we sin because we're sinners. And there's a huge difference between those two positions. We were born into sin. In fact, Scripture attests to the fact that we were actually conceived in sin. And that sin nature that we were conceived in and that we were born in, it corrupts absolutely every single thing about us. Everything we think, everything we say, everything we do. And Christians, therefore, should not be surprised to see division. We shouldn't be surprised to see evil and wickedness in people. We should understand these things. We should expect these types of things. We understand Why division and animosity exist in a given society? One of the biggest villains of World War II was a Nazi general named Adolf Eichmann. He was recognized as one of the masterminds and one of the primary organizers behind the Jewish Holocaust. He was responsible for deporting millions and millions of Jews off to concentration camps. And because he was such a central figure to the Holocaust... When the Germans, when the Nazis were defeated, he ran for his life rather than getting caught and standing trial. Nevertheless, he was caught in Buenos Aires, uh, Argentina in 1960, and he was forced to stand trial for his war crimes in what was the first fully televised courtroom trial in history. And millions of people around the world watched in anticipation of seeing this man, of seeing Adolf Eichmann finally be punished for all of his heinous war crimes. But perhaps the most dramatic moment of the trial came when one concentration camp survivor named Yehiel Deneur went to take the witness stand. And as he entered into the courtroom, he locked eyes with Adolf Eichmann for the first time in 18 years, which caused him, which caused the witness to begin loudly sobbing and uncontrollably crying. He fell to the floor as the judge pounded his gavel and called for order in the courtroom. A few years later, a journalist named Mike Wallace interviewed Deneur about that moment, about his reaction in that moment. And he asked him what it was specifically about that situation that provoked his famous reaction. Was it fear? Was it hatred? Was it just having a flood of traumatic memories come rushing back to him? No, it was none of these things, according to Dinor. In Dinor's words, he said this. He said, quote, I was afraid about myself. I saw that I am capable to do this. I am exactly like him. End quote. Mike Wallace summed up Denure's startling realization with these words. He said quote, "Eichmann is in all of us."." End quote. And many people will not accept that truth. That will sound like absolute nonsense to a lot of people. And that's because sin tends to cause us to see the sin, the horrible sins in other people, with 2020 vision, and yet it tends to make us blind to our own sin sin will only fully allow us to see the enemy in somebody else it won't allow us to see the enemy in the mirror as if we're somehow immune to the problems in the world that we would be so quick to find in others the effects of sin are found in every single one of us friends and they are heinous they are horrible Eichmann really is in all of us, because sin is in all of us, and all of us have inherited Adam's fallen nature. The proof for this, yes, is found uh, from the beginning of Genesis, of uh, Genesis chapter 3 through to the, the end of Revelation, when, when sin and Babylon is destroyed. But it's also found everywhere outside of Scripture as well. This is one of those things that that nature does reveal. It reveals the wickedness of man. We see it in the headlines. We see it every day on the evening news. Every single day. So as we study Psalm 36 today, this is what we're going to see. This is what the psalmist begins by underscoring. We'll see the deceptive, permeating nature of sin. But there's hope. There's hope because the deceptive nature of sin is going to be contrasted in this psalm with God's unfailing loving kindness unto all of his people. So, the structure of this psalm, if we were to outline it, is pretty simple. The first four verses, verses one to four, David will paint a picture of the darkness of humanity. In verses five to nine, David will paint a picture of God's loving kindness, of of his light. And in the final uh, four verses, verses 9 to 12, David shows us what our response should be to this contrast. And that brings us to the point of this psalm. The point of this psalm is the darkness of sin and the light of God should humble us and should cause us to seek more of God. So this psalm begins with David revealing that the horrible, the heinous, Ugly truth about humanity in general. This description, we should note ahead of time, this description includes every single child of Adam by nature, apart from God's redeeming grace. So we'll start just with verse 1 of Psalm 36. It says, For the choir director a Psalm of David, the servant of the Lord. Transgression speaks to the ungodly within his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes. We aren't told why he wrote that. We don't know exactly what circumstances or events might have caused or or driven him to write this, to write this psalm. And I suspect that that's because there didn't need to be any specific event that motivated David to write this song. There didn't need to be a specific set of circumstances. It was everywhere around David then, just as much as it's all around us today. All David needed to do was take a glance at God's Word and take a look at the world around him, and he would find all this information to be abundantly true. As he thought his way through all the events in his own life, he would have seen these principles that he records here in this psalm to be completely and unequivocally true. If you've ever wondered why we sin, here it is. You ever wonder, why do I sin? It's right there in this first verse. We don't sin because we're ignorant. We don't sin because we're stupid, as if The solution would be just educating us, and and we'd be good to go. We don't sin for those reasons. We don't sin because we learned it from our environment. That's a popular theory today, that I'm a product of my environment. My my environment was rough, and so I sin because of what I learned in that environment. As if putting us in a new environment is going to change that about us. Now, let's remember the environment that Adam and Eve sinned in. They were in perfection. They were in paradise. It has nothing to do, ultimately, with our environment. And sin cannot be eradicated through legislation or by progress, either technological or social. We sin because, as Solzhenitsyn said, the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. We sin because sinful desires reside within us, and they speak to us and we listen that's why we sin transgression speaks to the ungodly within his heart that's true of all of us and we are always by nature more than happy to oblige and obey exactly what it tells us to do Pride would have us point fingers and say, well, it speaks more loudly to to so-and-so than than it speaks to me, but we only do that because we're listening to that voice within us, and we're deceived by it. We're so deceived by it. The text says transgression speaks to the ungodly within his heart, but what's interesting to note in, in that one line is that A literal translation would not say uh, it speaks within his heart. A literal translation would say transgression speaks to the ungodly within my heart. He's referring to himself as ungodly. David is implicating himself here. He realizes that sin isn't just a problem for the mass murderers and for the child molesters, and for the rapists, and, and all the, the terrible sinners of the world. Wouldn't it be so easy if that were the case? No, David, the only person who gets referred to in Scripture as a man after God's own heart, David implicates himself. He recognizes that sin was just as much a problem for him as it was for anyone else. And so he's not just describing the most obviously evil and wicked uh, aspects of society or people in, uh, in human history. He's describing the condition that every single son of Adam is born into. And so the person who's humble and wise will be able to say, I'm the worst sinner I know. I'm the worst sinner I know. And the wise man will mean every single word of that in the fullest sense. I am the worst sinner I know. Are you able to say that about yourself? That's why Paul would refer to himself as the chief of sinners. In fact, as his, uh, as his journey uh, in growing in Christ's likeness progressed, he became more and more convinced of this. He started by by saying, I'm I'm the least of the apostles, uh, to saying I'm the chief of sinners at the end of his life. The fact that we are so eager to lend our ear to sinful temptations within us has an immediate effect on our lives. It has a very dangerous effect on our lives. And that effect is that we do not fear God. We do not fear God. It's it's not just that we don't fear Him enough. It's not just that we don't fear Him the way that we should, although those things are certainly true. No, David says there is no fear of God before His eyes. None. This is another reason that we can know that David is referring to all of Humanity. Because this verse, you might recognize it, it's quoted in Romans chapter three when Paul was giving God's indictment against the whole human race. This is what Paul writes in Romans chapter three, verses ten to eighteen. He writes, There is none righteous. So he's talking about everybody. This isn't just a few. This is everybody. There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave with their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. And then verse 18, Romans chapter 3, there is no fear of God before their eyes. He's quoting from this psalm. Now what's interesting here is that David doesn't use the same word for fear that is usually used in reference for God. The word that he uses here is pahad, which means terror or dread, whereas the word used elsewhere, like for example, in Proverbs, um, you know, where we read the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, uh, the word there is yirah, uh, which means respect or reverence. So the implication of the word that David uses here, pahad, is that sin speaks so smoothly and so persuasively to us that the human being, the, the natural man, the unregenerate, is left with absolutely no fear, no dread, no intense horror, no concern whatsoever at the reality that it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of a living God. No fear. It's not that they don't have enough. It's that they have none to speak of. They have zero Failing to rightly fear God this way is perhaps the single worst effect of sin on humanity. But sin is a smooth-talking salesman. And it blinds us from the reality of God's wrath that burns against us. And this renders sin an entirely irrational thing. Sin causes us to be completely irrational. You see, the most rational thing that a person can do is to fear God. To fear the fact that they are going to fall into the hands of a living God. To fear the fact that they are under His wrath. And to believe. To just trust God. That is the most rational thing in the world to do. Know the person who lives their life as if God is not going to hold them accountable is foolish. They've bought the lie. They're lacking, therefore, in sound thinking altogether. All of their thinking is corrupted by sin. And sin just speaks freely to them. But this isn't even the full description of what sin does to us. We've only seen the tip of the iceberg here. We've only just started to see the effect that sin has on humanity. David continues in verse 2. In verse 2 he writes this, For it, for sin, flatters him in his own eyes concerning the discovery of his iniquity and the hatred of it. This is to say that sin prevents us, prevents the natural man from seeing himself, from seeing ourselves accurately. It starts by just lying to us from within, and the next step is that we believe the lies so thoroughly, so completely, that we become self-deceived as well. So we're not just being deceived by this transgression speaking to us from within. No, now it's in our minds. Now we're, we're, we're seeing everything through this lens. It affects how we see ourselves. And so we flatter ourselves to think that we're okay with God. And that God doesn't have any wrath that he's storing up against us. We're not under his wrath. You hear people say it all the time. Only only God can judge me. And they're not terrified of it. They don't understand what that means if they're not terrified of it. Why? Because they have listened to the transgression speaking from within themselves, and they have believed the lie so thoroughly that now they are self-deceived completely self-deceived. They've flattered themselves. They become convinced that God will never punish them despite their love for sin. And if they weren't convinced that God doesn't care about their sin, they'd be forced to live in this abject fear of God that David says man by nature doesn't have. So really what this becomes, what, what this, this uh, self-deception becomes is a psychological coping mechanism. The only way we can live under God's wrath is to pretend, to convince ourselves that we're not under God's wrath. And there are a lot of ways that people do this. It plays out in a lot of different ways in people's lives. Some people flatter themselves by choosing to reject the reality of uh, the existence of the supernatural, for example. Uh, scientists, Carl Sagan, you know, he said, the cosmos is all there is and all there ever will be. They flatter themselves. They convince themselves that their mind and that their, their intellect uh, are superior because They have risen above such primitive and superstitious religious thinking. Other people flatter themselves by thinking that even if they do sin, well, their sins aren't so bad. Uh, Their their sins are minor in comparison to the sins of so-and-so, and this guy over here and that woman over there. As far as they're concerned, they're still relatively moral and upright and and god couldn't be mad at them because they're not as bad as other people and so this type of person thinks to himself well at least i'm not a murderer at least i'm not a child molester or or a racist or, or whatever and so he justifies his sin he he excuses all of his lying all of his lusting all of his gossiping and stealing because he thinks that these are more acceptable sins This type of person comes to think that God only gets mad at people who are worse than he is. But the truth is that in God's book, there is no such thing as a small or insignificant sin. Every sin, including the smallest sin, is a sin directly against God. But perhaps the most common way that people flatter themselves, even people who go to church flatter themselves this way, is by convincing themselves that they've got a long life ahead of them still. And thus there is no need to repent and believe today. Uh, They can put it off until they're on their deathbed. So so really what they're thinking is that they have jimmy-rigged the system that God put in place, and they'll just wait until their final hour to do what God has demanded that they do. And, And why do they do this? They do this so that they can continue to enjoy their sin for the rest of their life until they can't enjoy it anymore. They think they've outsmarted God, but tomorrow is never guaranteed. Tomorrow is never guaranteed, and it never becomes easier to repent and believe by putting it off. It only becomes more difficult. Why? Because the heart only becomes more and more hard towards sin over time. Jesus tells us what God says to such a person in a parable that he told in Luke chapter 12. He says, you fool, this very night your soul is required of you, and now who will own what you have prepared? Sin flatters the sinner to the point that the sinner is completely unable to see his own sin or to even hate his sin for how evil and how wicked it is. The point that David's making here, the point of the text here is that people by nature aren't only deceived by sin. That's how it starts, but it leads to self-deception. But then it doesn't stop there. It it, it starts in the heart, it goes to the mind, and then it plays out in a person's life. It works its way outward into our words and into our deeds. Let's look at verses 3 and 4 of Psalm 36. He says, the words of his mouth are wickedness and deceit. He has ceased to be wise and to do good. He plans wickedness upon his bed. He sets himself on a path that is not good. He does not despise evil. This is quite a descent into darkness. If we see ourselves as not being held to God's standard, as not being accountable to God, if we see our our sin as ultimately being inconsequential, what will restrain our hearts from wandering into the darkest and the deepest forms of evil? And the answer is nothing. If we don't live by God's standard, how far can a person wander from it? And the answer is really, really far. Really far. But notice what David says in verse 3. He says, he has ceased. He has ceased to be wise and to do good. The implication there is that there was a time when he wasn't as bad. He's talking about the hardening effect of sin. He's talking about how sin just hardens the heart. It never softens the heart. No, he he ceased to be wise, to have any form of of wisdom or goodness. Why why did he did he stop? Why did he cease? Well, it starts with sin whispering in his ear. It follows with him believing it and flattering himself that his sin isn't that big of a deal with God and that God isn't going to judge him for it. And so sin hardened his heart and took him to deeper and darker places than he realized it would. That's what sin always does. It doesn't take you where you think it's going to take you, it's going to take you farther. It always does. That's the way sin works. And so. This man that David is describing, the natural man, doesn't just get up on the wrong side of the bed, so to speak. Rather, before he even sets his feet on the ground, he's plotted his course for the day down a dark and wicked path. And so when all is said and done, the truth is that he doesn't despise evil at all. He doesn't fear God, and therefore, the result is, he doesn't despise evil Every time a person sins, it has a hardening effect. They become less and less able to identify sin. They become less able to see what a grip sin has on their lives. They become less able to understand how vile and and wicked sin is. It not only becomes what seems kind of normal and acceptable to them, but the worst of it is that, What happens is that what God has declared to be evil, they will think is good. And what God has declared to be good, they will think is evil. Sin turns a person's moral compass completely upside down. What a terrible condition man is born into by nature. What a terrible, awful thing to see. What awful sinners we are by nature but the good news is that jesus died for sinners if you can see how terrible of a sinner you are what a relief it is to see that jesus died for sinners not for any other type of person only sinners he stood in the rightful place of murderers of rapists child molesters sinners of every shape and every flavor, taking the full brunt of God's wrath against their sin in their place. Once blinded by sin, God extended grace and mercy to them, opening their eyes to the truth of their condition, opening their eyes to the reality of their sin, and obliterating the, the, the flattering lies that, it, that they'd been convinced to believe opening their eyes to see the goodness of Christ and the offer to come to Him and to be cleansed by His forgiving, steadfast, loving kindness. So the truth is, you can keep walking away from God. You can keep believing that sin has no consequences. You can keep living your life as if you're your own God. And if you do this, you must know that you are on the broad road that leads to destruction. Or, you can turn from your sin. Stop flattering yourself, but humble yourself and come into the light of God's redeeming love. As Spurgeon once said, God loves to forgive more than you love to sin. Who is this God? That's the question that the sinner has come to. So the startling realization must be asking themselves at this point, who is this God? See, this opening section, it doesn't feel too good. It's not very popular with people. If you present it to them, you're not going to get a round of applause because people hate the truth about themselves. See, this opening section is designed to work like kind of a glass of cold water just being splashed in your face, waking you up sobering you up it's a startling and sobering glimpse of of who we are by nature it's completely opposed to the lies it's it's designed to break the lies that humanity by nature has believed it's it's designed to humble us and to shatter any and all confidence a person has in the flesh so that we may truly see our need for grace so that we may truly see our need for a Savior. So that we may truly see our need for God. Who is this God? And David tells us who this gracious and merciful God is in the second section of this psalm, which is found in verses 5 to 9. So we'll start with verses 5 and 6. David writes this He says, your loving kindness, O Lord, extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the skies. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like a great deep. O Lord, you preserve man and beast. In these two pretty brief verses, David mentions actually five very important things for the person who has come, become aware of their sin to know about God. We call these attributes of God. Now, if you're the type of person who likes to, to write things in your Bible or to circle or to underline in your Bible, circle loving kindness. Or if you're reading the, the ESV, uh, you know, you can circle or underline steadfast love. It's the same, uh, same word there. This is clearly an important aspect of God's nature for sinners to be aware of. Because David refers to God's loving kindness or steadfast love, depending on your translation, three times throughout this psalm, as if to underline it or circle it for us in our Bibles. Now the Hebrew word, you might already know what it is. You might have already guessed what it is. It's one that we have seen repeatedly throughout our study of the psalms. It's kind of a string that weaves its way through all of the psalms. It is chesed one of those words you've got to say in the back of your throat, chesed. That refers to God's covenantal love. It's not the love that he has for everyone. It's the covenantal love that he has only with his people. It's, it's not that God doesn't love all people. He does, but there's a certain type of love, a chesed, a steadfast love that he extends only to his people. See, people have this idea that because God is omnibenevolent, because God is all-loving, he must love all people equally, and that just isn't true. He doesn't love all people equally. He has a different love. He has a special love. He has a covenantal love for his people, for those who love him and fear him rightly. And this only makes sense to us since we're told to to love people, right? But if I love all women the same way that I love my wife, you'd say, there's something wrong with you, pastor, and rightly so. And it's the same with God. He's got a special love toward his bride, toward his people, that he doesn't have toward the unregenerate man. When David says that God's covenantal love or his loving kindness extends to the heavens, he means that it is greater than the sins of his people. He means that his covenantal love has no end, that it's like a a sea of mercy and grace that has no shores. It's a love so great, so deep, so wide that it cannot be measured, that it cannot be contained. That's God's loving kindness. That's God's covenantal love. That's the first attribute of God that David lists off here. The second one, the second attribute of God that David draws our attention to in the second half of verse 5 is God's faithfulness. We should understand his faithfulness flows from his chesed, from his covenantal love. It, It means that his loving kindness is not only limitless, but that it is true that it never fails and this is why we cling to God's promises because of his faithfulness to these promises he's not like man who changes his mind when he makes a promise how do you know how do you know that it is still true and that it will always be true that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, which is a promise that God gives us through Paul's pen in Romans 8, chapter 1. How do you know that that's still true today, as true today as it was when Paul wrote it 2,000 years ago? It's because of God's faithfulness. It's because of God's faithfulness. Here's what you must know, friends. Our sinfulness never negates or nullifies God's faithfulness. Our sinfulness never negates or nullifies God's faithfulness. Spurgeon put it this way He said, The glory of God's faithfulness is that no sin of ours has ever made him unfaithful. End quote. God is faithful to his promises, he's faithful to his word, and he's faithful to his people. That's the second attribute that David draws our attention to. The third one, in verse 6, David draws our attention to God's righteousness. If you're circling or underlining these attributes, you can, you can circle or underline righteousness. What this means is that God will always do what is good. He'll always do what is morally right. And remember this, whenever it seems from your finite perspective that God could have done something better than he has already done. It, people often have a plethora of emotionally charged objections, for example, to the doctrine of election. Uh, when, I tell, uh, when I tell somebody who brings this up, uh, you know, that this doesn't seem fair to them, that it doesn't seem righteous to them, Uh, is, yeah, perhaps we can't fully understand the doctrine of election, but A, the Bible clearly teaches it. There's no denying that, uh, that the Bible teaches it. And B, if it seems less than good or right or righteous to us, remember that God always does what is good and right, even when we don't understand. God is always righteous. That's the third attribute. Fourth, uh, David mentions God's judgments. You can circle judgments. God is a God who makes judgments. And David says they're like a great deep, which means that God's purposes and His plans aren't shallow, aren't superficial, aren't spur of the moment, or you know, uh, or, or just arbitrary. No, God sees to the depths of every situation. He can see to the depths of our hearts. His judgments are not superficial. His judgments are deep. Fifth and finally, David wants us to know that our God is a Savior and sustainer. He not only cares for and sustains uh, the irrational and, and unintelligent beasts and animals of the field, but He cares for, He sustains, and He provides for man's needs as well. Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount, he causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good, and sa- sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. That's from Matthew chapter 5, verse 45. And David's desire in, in listing out these attributes, and my desire today, friends, is that you would know this God that David is talking about, that David is describing here. That you would love this God, that you would serve and worship this God as He is worthy of. He is a good God. He is a gracious God. And when you aren't sure what God is up to, when you see things around you just falling apart and you're not sure where everything is going, you're not sure exactly what God is doing, here's what you must do. You must fall back on who God is. When things don't make sense, when God doesn't make sense, fall back on who he is. It's very important to understand and to to know these attributes of God. Even though we deserve his wrath, he lavishes us with his grace and pours out his blessings on his people. So having listed five attributes of God, David will now continue by listing five blessings that he bestows upon his people. And these are blessings, again, that... The natural man does not receive. The natural man does not know or understand. These are only blessings that God bestows upon his people, those who, to whom he has extended his chesed, uh, loving kindness. Let's look at verses 7 to 9. David continues, How precious is your loving kindness. There it is again. How precious is your loving kindness, O God. And the children of men take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They drink their fill of the abundance of your house, and you give them to drink of the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light, we see light. So the first blessing that David says that God bestows upon his people is the blessing of refuge. The blessing of refuge. The Hebrew word that gets translated refuge literally means to put trust in. And that's why the, the King James Version, for those of you who are maybe a little bit more old school, although there are some new, new school people who like the KJV, uh, which says the children of men put their trust under the shadow of thy wings the picture here that David is giving us, the picture that this word provides for us is of a mother hen who hides her chicks under her wings as a means of protecting them from danger. And mother hens are famous for uh, the fact that they will do everything that they can to protect their chicks in this way, even if it means giving their own life while doing so, which is exactly how God has provided refuge for us in sending his only Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to give his life in the place of sinners. Second Samuel chapter 22, verse 31 says that God is a shield to all who take refuge in him. A refuge from what? Some might ask. Not the problems of life necessarily, because we still experience those things, although he gives us strength in those situations. No, God is first and foremost a refuge from God himself for his people. Refuge from God's certain wrath. There's a storm of God's wrath that is brewing and it's coming, and the only place to take shelter from it, the only place to find any sort of protection from it, Is found by believing in Jesus Christ. What could possibly protect you from God's wrath except for God Himself? It only makes sense. In Christ, the solution for this is found. In Christ, God took on flesh and lived a sinless life, the life that He demanded from us, but which we could not and did not live up to. This is called Christ's active obedience. He was obedient to the will of the Father. He upheld the law perfectly. But he also died a sinner's death. He died the death that we deserve, and in doing so, he not only satisfied God's holy wrath against our sin, but he also took our sin upon himself, and in exchange, he clothed us in his own perfect righteousness. Christ is the one and only refuge from God's wrath, the one and only shelter from certain judgment. Why would you not come to him for protection? If you stay outside in disbelief, you will surely die in your sin, and you will endure his eternal wrath against your sin. Come to Christ come to Christ in true faith and you will find this blessing this blessing of refuge from God's wrath the second blessing is satisfaction david says they fill their they drink their fill of the abundance of your house god doesn't feed scraps to his kids he doesn't give us leftovers He spiritually feeds them and he spiritually nourishes them abundantly from his own table. The third blessing is is similar. Joyful delight. David continues in verse 8 saying, And you give them to drink of the river of your delights. He doesn't force us to drink the river of our delights. Praise the Lord. That would be a judgment against us. That's what God does when he judges a person. He hands them over to their sin. And that's what they do. They drink their own delights, and it's bitter. They drink from the bitter river of sin and wickedness, and and truthfully, they wouldn't want it any other way. No, what God fills us with is His own joyful delight. The chief end of man is what? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And by his grace, that is exactly what he blesses us with. The ability to glorify him and to delight in him, to enjoy him. Joyful delight is the third thing that he blesses his people with. Fourth and fifth, God blesses us with life and light. Life and light. David writes in verse 9, For with you is the fountain of life, in your light we see light. The implication there is that without God's light, we don't see light. Life here refers to the physical life that we have, yes, but it also refers to spiritual life. Uh, th- this is very similar language to what we find in John chapter 1, verse 4, where John writes, In him, speaking of Jesus, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. Uh, Jesus said in John chapter 5, verse 21, "...for just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom he wishes." Is he speaking physically or spiritually? He's speaking spiritually there. He's talking about spiritual life. He's talking about everlasting or eternal life. And likewise, David is not only talking about uh, physical light and and life, uh, which of course God gives, but he's also talking about spiritual light. Not only spiritual life, but spiritual light. Because apart from him shining his light on us, we see no light. We are just lost in darkness apart from God shining His light on us. Spiritually speaking, we are all like the man who was born blind that we read about in John chapter 9. That's the reason that his story is found in our Bibles. It's not just given to show us that Jesus can do signs and wonders, that he can can break the laws of nature and be a miracle worker. It's also uh, told to show us who we are in our natural condition, apart from God's grace. To show us that apart from his healing us, we are spiritually blind, unable to see anything, unable to see any spiritual truth. But by His grace, God can open eyes to see the truth about our fallen condition. And by His grace, He opens blind eyes to behold the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. The darkness of sin, the light of God should have an effect on us. The proper effect, the proper response to these two things is to humble ourselves. It's to humble us and cause us to seek more and more of God. That's David's prayer for us as David concludes the psalm. Let's continue in verses uh, 10 to 12. David writes, Oh, continue your loving kindness. There it is again. O, oh, continue your loving kindness to those who know you and your righteousness to the upright in heart. Let not the foot of pride come upon me and let not the hand of the wicked drive me away. There the doers of iniquity have fallen. They have been thrust down and cannot rise. David's prayer, you might notice, is not on behalf of everyone. It's not on behalf of all of humanity. It's not on behalf of fallen humanity. His prayer is on behalf of those who know God. But even if you know God, even if you have sought His face rightly, as as you should, there will never come a point in your life, in your journey with God, where you can just go ahead and and hang it up and, and stop. There's never a place that we get to that's like that. Not only does David pray pray that God's loving kindness has has said covenantal love would continue to those who know him, but David also prays that God would continue to extend righteousness to the upright in heart. Similarly, there never comes a time when we can do uh, without that. There there never comes a time when we can do without his loving kindness. Uh, There never comes a time when we don't need his righteousness. Notice the parallel here. in in this one verse, in verse 10. Notice the parallel between those who know you and those who are upright in heart. If you know God, if you truly know him, it has this effect. He has this effect on his people. It it won't just result in an outward form of righteousness. That's easy. You You can train a monkey to do that. You can use behavior therapy to teach a sinner to sin less. Just give them a shock every time they do a certain sin. Eventually, they'll stop. The real issue isn't outward sin. The root problem is that the person who isn't upright in heart, it plays out in their lives. Who isn't outwardly righteous, it's got a root problem in their hearts, It's the fact that the dividing line of good and evil cuts through every human heart. If your righteousness is only outward, it's an act. It's a facade. And it's only a matter of time until sin affects you outwardly because you haven't dealt with the root of the issue. While God is able to make us upright in heart, to cause us to be upright in heart, and to cause us to be, reconciled with him to be at peace with him one of the effects of inward and outward righteousness is that it will invariably stir up the hostility and the animosity of those who have no uprightness of heart and that is why division exists david thus asks to be protected from the schemes and actions of sinful people He prays, let not the foot of pride come upon me and let not the hand of the wicked drive me away. Drive me away from what? From God. From God. David's prayer is that God would not allow David to fall and to be swept away by sin with sinful people who hate God. His prayer is that God would protect David from going back to being who David was back in verses 1-4. to The wicked would love for David and any righteous person to fall. They'd love to laugh at God by causing God's people to fall into sin. And David knew the weakness of his own flesh. Oh, David knew. But he also knew that God was more than capable of preventing the hand of the wicked from driving him away from God. Remember what David remembers here in this final verse. He sort of prophetically sees the place where his persecutors would meet their end and come face to face with the God they spent their lives denying and hating and running from. They are blinded by sin, just like you once were. And the day of judgment is coming. Wicked people are going to do what wicked people are going to do. What else would you expect? But how are they going to change? How does anybody change from wickedness to being upright in heart? By hearing the gospel. By hearing the gospel. And so, friends, if you're afraid of being driven away from God, as you should be, as David was, pray for opportunities to share the gospel with those who hate you and who would drive you away from God. They would take delight in it, yes, Pray that their delight would be in God rather than in mocking God. The psalm gives us the right perspective of reality, friends. This is the right perspective of reality. It doesn't elevate man. It tells us the truth about ourselves. It doesn't lower God. It tells us the truth about Him too. This is what good theology does. It keeps man low and it keeps God very high. And I pray that this psalm would give you a right and biblical view of yourself, of your neighbor, and of God. I pray that it would destroy any and all confidence you might have in the flesh before God, and that it would convince you to place the full weight of your confidence on Christ. In light of these truths, I implore you to seek more of him, you can't ever reach the point where you've had enough of Him. Glorify Him. Delight in Him. And enjoy Him forever. Let's pray. Our most gracious God and Father, we thank You for Your Word. Thank You for the clear picture of who we were apart from your grace. Oh Lord, apart from your grace, we were hopeless. We were helpless. Rather than being people of the truth, we were people who just believed lies. Lies about ourselves. Lies about our sin. Lies about you. But we thank you that by your grace, you shattered all of those lies. Lies. And you replaced the heart of stone with the heart of flesh. You put your spirit within us and caused us to walk according to your ordinances. What grace, O oh Lord. We thank you for your grace. And we pray, O oh Lord, that as this psalm gives us not only the right perspective of ourselves, but of the world around us, we pray, O oh Lord, for opportunities to share the gospel with those who are lost in darkness that by Your light they may see the light, and that by Your grace many would be drawn to Christ for the sake of His glory. In His name we pray. Amen.